Welcome back to another episode of the Next Level Minds podcast. My name is Chris Chapman, and I am your host. And if this is your first time tuning in, and this is a podcast dedicated to those who want to reach a next level in their business, personal, or career life, every other week, I'm blessed to sit down with a fully qualified entrepreneur, content creator, or mover or shaker in their industry, and really walk through their story, how they've gotten from point A to point B and overcame various adversities along the way. Now, before we dive into this week's episode, I just want to reiterate my main goal, which is to truly impact over 1 million people. So if you have not done this already, please take the time to subscribe to Next Level Minds on Apple Podcast. Share this episode with a family member, friend, or colleague. And if you're really feeling special, leave a review of Next Level Minds on Apple Podcast and let me know what you think. Now on to today's guest, I am sitting down with Rick Yerish, who is a retired U.S. Army Sergeant. He served in Iraq for nine months and then was severely injured by an IED while on patrol. He suffered second and third degree burns. His right leg had to get amputated. He lost both ears, nose, and multiple fingers. So he's gone through multiple adversities and failures and i know this podcast touches on a lot of these and so rick's really going to share his story of how he got through those traumatic situations and his recovery efforts because now he has moved on to speaking to millions of people from all walks of life sports teams schools churches military nonprofit, multiple media outlets sharing how he has overcome these negative circumstances that occurred in his life. He talks a lot about hope and he talks a lot about rising up. So I'm excited to sit down with him today and go through all of this. I know there's a lot of people out there that may be struggling with different things. And I can almost guarantee after reading some more information about Rick and talking to him a bit before the episode that he's going to have a lot of great things to say and a lot of advice on how to get through tough situations. And as we always like to say here at Next Level Minds, your mindset is your greatest weapon for the battle of success. Rick, thanks so much for taking the time to hop on the Next Level Minds podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, Chris. It's an honor to be here. Absolutely. You said you're you're on the road this week. Is is that right? Or I am. I am almost on the road every week. Uh, but this week I am on Long Island uh, speaking to some schools. We're at an elementary school today, uh, a middle school on Monday, and another middle school tomorrow. I've always wondered for people that travel like that, do you just get kind of used to the whole packing, unpacking, stuff like that? Or I have the routine down. <laughs> I, it's 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 almost weird because that you know during summer I don't travel much. Yeah. So when September comes, I'm like all thrown off, and usually that first engagement when I'm out at a hotel and I'm like, oh no, I forgot my belt or I forgot my shoes or I forgot something. I always do. Um, but at this point in the year, it's so so uh, leveled out. I know exactly what I need at, uh, every single time. Yeah, no, it's for me, I don't really travel too much for work. And even if I go on a personal trip, I'm like, all right, let me set up the checklist like two days before. Let me do this. Let me do that. And and so but I feel like it's one of those things you just kind of get used to as you do it more. I am a checklist guy, though. When we go on vacation over the summer, I my wife is like, really, you have T-shirts on there? I'm like, yeah, I want to forget my T-shirts. 
I'm a checklist guy. That's the army in me, I think. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. And uh, I know that's where your story really begins with, with the United States Army. So I'd love if you could touch on, you know, what made you want to join, as I know that is a, a large act of service. And I'm a, a big patriot myself. I love America. So I'm always interested why people wanted to serve. Yeah. So, I, you know, I always go back to my big three. I have big three reasons, three really big reasons why I joined. And there's a lot of other reasons, too, but there's three really big ones. And the first one was... Um, like when I was in high school, I'll tell you right now, I didn't do very well. Um, academics was not my thing, and it wasn't my thing because I didn't really care that it was my thing. Like I should have been doing a lot better. But um, when I graduated high school, I barely graduated. And then I thought this magical thing happened when they handed you your diploma. Like I thought that diploma was like a magical piece of paper where it changed your life. And uh, that's not how it works. Nothing changes unless you change. And mm. I've learned that over time. But um, I kept the same attitude when I graduated. I was like barely getting by and uh, working a lot of cook jobs and stuff like that. And I felt like I needed a change in my life. So um, I knew the Army would give me that change. I knew they would at least uh, kick me in the butt and say, hey, let's go. Let's go. You got to do something. And I would follow the right people. So that was the first reason. Um, second reason was 9-11 and, you know, that happened, I joined in uh, 2004. So it was three years before I joined that it happened, but that always stuck with me. And, you know, a lot of people, when I hear, when they hear 9-11, then I joined because of it. Uh, they think, uh, it's because I was angry and it's actually not why, um, I was angry for sure. I mean, most people were, but that's not why I joined. Why I joined was, uh, I was actually really proud of how uh, the people in this country came together. And I don't know, it just, it was an amazing thing to watch. People putting their arms around each other that never had met in their life, didn't care a thing about each other, but all of a sudden they did care. Because um, when we go through difficult things in our life, we need other people. And when, when we deal with really difficult things in our life, we need a lot of people. And it was amazing. And I wanted to be a part of like preserving that. Mm -hmm. So that was the second reason. And uh, the third reason, and really the biggest of them all, the one that really made me go and sign the papers was um, Easter Sunday of 2004. I was at my grandmother's house and uh, on her coffee table was our local newspaper, the uh, Press and Sun Bulletin. And uh, the front page headline read, Sydney grad killed in Iraq. Sydney is a uh, town that's just two towns over from where I grew up in Windsor, New York. And uh, when I read the, art, the the headline, I looked underneath and there was a picture of that graduate from Sydney. And uh, I knew him. And I knew him because he wrestled for Sydney. His name was Isaac Nieves. And, you know, when you wrestle for a small school and there's a small school that has a wrestling team, you just know everybody. You know the guys around you. You spend entire weekends together at tournaments. And I read the article. And that's when I realized, like, what am I doing? Mm. Like, this guy, he just gave everything for me, everything for us, and I have done nothing. And uh, the day after I read that article is the day. So Monday morning, the day after Easter, I went down to the recruiter's office, and I said, it's time. It's time for me to go. And I made the final decision that I was going into the United States Army. Wow, man. That's a really emotional story. I mean, all three of those especially how you saw the change that needed to happen, the 9-11 situation, and then the uh, Sydney situation there of the the individual that you knew um, passing away from, from uh, being in Iraq. Um, and I love that it's all tied to something deeper than just, hey, it's because I wanted to type of thing, right? I think so many people in life make decisions just because, oh, I, I feel like I kind of want to do this, but I don't you agree you kind of need that like deep emotional connection to really do something big? 
Absolutely. It was, it was more, so it was emotional and, but also it was more than a want. A lot of it was a need for me. Mm. I needed to go like for one, I didn't know where I was going. Like, you know, the first reason that the attitude I kept in high school after I graduated, that's not a good attitude to have. And if I didn't do something about it, I don't know where I would have ended up. So it was more than even a want to go. I did want to go, but I needed to go. I needed to go so bad that um, I always have struggled with uh, my weight and my health. And out of all the things that are frustrating in my life, that's one of the biggest because it's something that I can control and I have a hard time controlling. The things that are out of my control, I really don't worry about those things. I know people say that stuff all the time, but I truly do not. Um, this one is something I struggle with my, my, my weight. And, uh, when I was joining, I was over what I should be and I had to lose a bunch of weight. So when I went to the recruiter's office, uh, and, and, uh, Syracuse actually did the tape test where they tape your uh, waist to see how big that is. And then they do your neck too. I stood there and I had my belly sucked in as hard as I could suck it in. And I was making my neck as big as I could. That's because that's what they wanted to do. And the guy is like, dude, I'm not taping you. You're not standing right. And I'm like, I am standing right. And he's like, come on, man. <laughs> you, you look really awkward right now. And uh, he wouldn't tape me. Finally, he taped me. And um, I had already gone there once and I had failed. And I knew I was going to fail that first time I went. I knew I was overweight. I just wanted to get into the system. So when I went that second time and he taped me and I was standing all awkward like that, um, I had already lost like 20 or 30 pounds since the first mm -hmm. time I was there. And he taped me and he came back to me after he taped me and he said, why weren't you standing normal? He's like, you lost 30 pounds. And I told him, I said, I need to go. Yeah. Like I need to, I don't want this to wait another month. I need to go now. I'm ready. So that's, that's what that need that I'm talking about. I needed to go. Yeah. And he's probably taped enough people where he's like, I've, I've seen it all. Right. <laughs> he told me, he said, I know your recruiters told you to do this. And I was like, yes, you are correct. They did. <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. Um, I, I want to touch on you. You said the concept earlier about you, you felt as if you needed change. And I know a lot of people listening are in situations, maybe they're in a dead end job, maybe their business isn't working out, or maybe they're just kind of feel stuck. Do you think change is something that just like snaps a finger and you feel like you need it? Or is it a continuous like thing after thing after thing? And then it finally hits you. Oh, I think it's, a, it takes time. Yeah. Like, I think you start to feel that you need change earlier than you actually rec like, then you actually will make the change. Um, I knew I needed a change before that, but I mean, change, some change is very drastic and uh, you don't just make that drastic decision uh, quickly. So I knew I needed to change well before I joined the army, but it was those, it was all of that, knowing that I needed that change slowly, more and more and more. And it got to the point where I was like, okay, guess what? Nothing changes if I don't do something about it and make the change myself. And, you know, that's what led me up to making that big decision to join. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think it's like a continuous process, just like anything else, like working out, you know, eating right. Like it's not just one day, it's it's going to all work out. It's like you slowly have to keep building and compounding yeah. over time. So absolutely. Um. All right, let, let's touch on this. So you were in Iraq for nine months. And from my understanding and research, you were severely injured by an IED after that those nine months. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, nine months in is when I was hit with an IED. 
So I don't want to take anything away from you there. And I would love if you could just describe that, you know, from, from your perspective. Yeah. So, I mean, um, that day was, uh, the day that my life was turned upside down. Um, today I would never tell you that it mean that it, meant, it doesn't mean the same thing today. Like then I thought my life was turned upside down and you know, everything did change, but I'm telling you today, right now, from my perspective today, it was the best thing that ever happened to me when it happened. It certainly wasn't. I mean, when I was hit with that IED and my body was on fire and, uh, it wasn't a good thing, obviously, you know, um, when it happened, the first thing I could even think of was I have to get out of this vehicle. Like as, if I'm going to survive, the one thing I have to do first is I have to get out. I can't think about tomorrow, what's going to come then. I'm, I can't think about what's going to come in a week. If I don't get out of this vehicle, there isn't going to be another minute to think about this. So I knew I had to get out. I climbed to the top. And once I got to the top, I knew I had to get to the ground. Um, big problem with that because it's 10 feet off of the ground, the top of the turret. So I was going to have to make a 10 foot leap. Big problem. Um, bigger problem. I can't see. That's the biggest problem. And that's because my face was covered in flames and the flames, uh, were covering my eyes, which meant I was blind, but I had to jump. It didn't matter if I could see or not. So I did jump and I did make it to the ground, but when I landed, it wasn't safely because I couldn't see the ground. And, um, I broke my leg when I landed because uh, I couldn't land flat mm. with both feet. So I landed, broke my leg, severed an artery in my leg, and that's what ended up uh, with. That's how I ended up with an amputation um, below my knee on my right leg. Um, you know, as soon as I hit that ground, you know, next thing because this whole thing is like, how do you survive? Like when you're put in a situation like this, that's all you think of is how do I survive this? It was get out, get off the vehicle, get the fire out. So now I got to stop, drop and roll. I mean, that's what I was taught when I was four or five years old. And that's what I did. I rolled around the ground. I tried to put the fire out, but I could not because there was too much fuel and there was too much fire. Um, really all I was doing was setting the dead grass on fire. I couldn't put the fire out. And, um, you know, that's when I did something that I regret. It's honestly the biggest regret of my life because that's when I just laid there and I laid on my back and I just looked up into the sky and I gave up. Mm. I didn't know what else to do. I really didn't. I just did the thing I was taught to do. And I couldn't stand up and run because my leg was broken. And even if I could stand up and run, where was I going? I couldn't see because my face was on fire. Um, so I gave up. And like I said, it's the biggest regret of my life. Now, I know today in my life, I will never, ever give up again. That doesn't mean I won't die someday. That doesn't mean that at all. But I will never give up until I am gone. I don't care how difficult the situation is. I will never give up. So, um, you know, what I gave up that day was what a lot of people give up, unfortunately, and that's hope. I gave up hope and in my life and uh, I've adopted this as um, you know, how I look at things. H O P E uh, hope stands for hold on possibilities exist. Like if we don't hold on to find out what the possibilities are, like, what is it? I know that I will never do that again. I will never lose that. There are the possibilities through getting through really difficult things are amazing. When you get through something really difficult, you find something really amazing. So that day I gave up hope, but it was only for a second because I ended up rolling in one direction and I actually rolled down a little hill and into a canal that was there. Yeah. 
that put you out? It put me out. It was oh my just, God. and it was just enough water. It's not like it was a river. It was a small ditch that they we called canals, and uh, it basically had just enough water in it uh, to put the fire out, and it saved my life. And uh, that's when a couple of my friends found me, and that was also the first time I really felt pain. When my friends found me, came down, grabbed my arms, grabbed my legs, and when they grabbed my leg, that's when I knew my leg was bad. Um, so I could feel the pain from my leg. I couldn't feel the burns. They, My nerves had been burnt through. Um, my adrenaline was pumping. Um, I probably was in a little bit of shock at that point, but I did feel my leg. Uh, they carried me out of the canal up to the top. My buddy, one of my buddies who pulled me out, standing over me, because just like I said earlier, when we deal with difficult things in our life, we need help. And he was standing over me and helping me. And I asked him a silly question. I said, how bad is it? And, um, you know, silly question, because I knew how bad it was. I saw how bad my hands were burnt. Like my fingertips or my palms, they were hanging from my fingertips. What? And, you know, I had heard this afterwards. They call it degloving, like pulling a glove off of your hands. If it was hanging from your fingertips, that's what my hands looked like. And uh, same with my face. Like my face was hanging from my chin. So that's a silly question that I asked my buddy because I knew how bad it was. And, you know, as a good friend would do in that kind of situation, he's not going to tell you the truth. He's not going to tell you, hey, Rick, it's really bad. You might not live through it. That's not what I needed to hear. And he actually said, it's not that bad. And after he said that, I looked back at him and I said, well, at least I'll never be as ugly as you are. <laughs> no way. Yeah. So even in the moment oh, of like, I'm, I'm almost, I'm almost, I'm dying here. And uh, I still got to throw a joke at him. Sense of humor. And, yeah. you know, I talk about that word hope. I believe it gave him some hope. I believe it gave him some hope. And that was the hope that here's the truth. The truth was, you know, Rick, you might not make it. It's bad. But you're hearing my sense of humor. You know, maybe it gave him the hope that, you know, maybe Rick's going to make it. Yeah. Maybe he's going to make it. So when you hit that, were, were you all surrounded by like a city? Like who was around when you guys had hit that? Us. Wow. I mean, yeah, when when stuff like that happened, miraculously, there was no one around. Yeah. Never. Um, most of the time when you went through an area and there was a, an attack about to happen, nobody would be around uh, mm. because they knew. They yeah. knew that there was somebody going to set off an IED. Now, I'll tell you right now, where we were that day, it was very desolate. There wasn't a lot of uh, buildings or people around anyways. Uh, we were in the countryside of Iraq. And, um, so just my guys, you know, there was, we had, we were in a, we were in a patrol of five vehicles. So there was three Humvees and two Bradleys and I was a Bradley guy. And, um, we were actually the fifth Bradley or the fifth vehicle. So the last vehicle in the convoy. And if you're the last vehicle in the convoy, your job is to look backwards. Hmm. And that sucks because when you're driving down a dirt road and you're kicking up all that dirt, when you're looking backwards, all you can see is all the dirt that's been kicked up. So it's not a fun place to be. So we actually did a short halt. We stopped for just a couple minutes and two minutes. Uh, and we asked if we could move up to the fourth vehicle. So the other Bradley, we changed with them. And uh, after we changed, not even two minutes later is when we hit that IED. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And okay. So that happened. You rolled into the canal and then you, you made the joke to your buddy. I'll never be as ugly as you, which I think is hilarious. Yeah. Um, and, and then what happened like maybe 24 hours after that? Yeah, so, I mean, so I was in a hospital in San Antonio, Texas within 30 hours of that happening. 
which is amazing to me. But I mean, first we had to go, uh, we a helicopter picked us up from there and, you know, it's a hot zone because we were just attacked. So the helicopters have to be very careful about where they land. And our vehicle was exploding because of all the rounds that we had in it. So they couldn't uh, land real close. And there's just a lot of things that go into that landing. It took 30 minutes for them to get there because of, uh, I heard they had engine trouble with one of the helicopters and they had to go back and get new ones. So they, they eventually got to us. Uh, they took me and my two buddies uh, who were in the vehicle with me. So uh, Specialist Andrew Lowe was in the vehicle. Uh, he was our driver. And uh, Sergeant Luis Montez was our Bradley commander. I was the gunner. And uh, they took us, uh, all three of us, to the hospital in Baghdad first. Uh, that helicopter ride from uh, the battlefield to Baghdad, that was the last time I ever saw or talked to uh, Sergeant Montez again because he actually ended up passing away. Um, mm. So we all made it to San Antonio, like I said, 30 hours later. But um, Sergeant Montez uh, was only in that hospital for six days, really, because he ended up passing away seven days after the injury, September 7th, 2006. So that's, you know, like all the things I deal with in my life, that's certainly the hardest. Yeah. That is certainly the hardest for me to deal with, just the fact that he's not here. But when I talk about death and I talk about, you know, I have a very positive attitude in life. Mm. Um, when I talk about death, I, I try to think, okay, you know, how do I spin this one? with a positive spin well you know montez leaving he left me with a lot a lot of amazing uh stories a lot of amazing knowledge and you know if he was still here i don't know if the, the stuff that he taught me would mean as much as it does to me right now that doesn't mean i'm glad he's gone or anything like that absolutely not i just try to find a positive spin on anything i wish he was still here um but i know that the lessons that he taught me they didn't go anywhere. They never left me. Yeah. And that was all just putting a positive spin on anything and kind of having a positive attitude and all that. I got to have a positive attitude. Yeah. Got to think about those things. Uh, that or I just mourn Sergeant Montez's death every single day. Yeah. And uh, sure. it's not going to put me in a. I think about Sergeant Montez every day, that, that, but I don't mourn his death every single day. Um, when I think of mourning someone, I think of sadness. I think of anger. I think of, um, I don't know, this kind of lost spot that we're in when we mourn. It doesn't feel good to mourn. Um, I celebrate Montez's life and uh, the fact that I got to know him. Yeah, no, absolutely. And of course, sorry for your loss, but well, I as, appreciate it. as you mentioned, it it seems like he he helped you be a better man to, to who you are today, right? There's no doubt about it. No doubt about it. When I do my presentations in schools, I say his name every single day. Oh, uh, that's cool, man. He's up in heaven right now. Like, yeah, I'm getting shout outs. <laughs> right? That's right. That's right. And I think about that too, man. I think about that. If it was, if it was me that didn't make it that day, you know, because, you know, I have lots of friends who deal with survivor's guilt. Um, they come home from Iraq and they feel guilty that they're the ones that are get to be here. And, you know, I've struggled with that because I've never felt that survivor's guilt because I think about that. Montez isn't looking down on me thinking, man, Rick's got it so good and I wish I could do. That's not the way I'm looking at it. I'm seeing him up there saying, go get him, Rick. Like, yeah. that's what he's saying. And that's what I would be saying. I know I'd be rooting Montez on. So I don't have that survivor's guilt, which actually has given me a different kind of guilt. You know, I feel guilty that I don't have that survivor's guilt. It's kind of crazy to think about. Yeah, no, it it definitely is. That is a unique perspective. Um, so can you expand on this a little bit more? The uh, hope 
versus hopelessness and was it hold on possibilities exist was that the acronym yeah it's hold on possibilities exist yeah so you know i only know a lot about hope because i know what too much about hopelessness um you know the hopelessness that i felt along the way that day in iraq i felt again now i didn't give up in the hospital that day i had given up like i said i'll never do that again but i still you can still feel hopeless and not give up um and you can have a lack of hope and still not give up but when i was in the hospital seeing my face for the first time hopeless Mm. because here i am thinking do i even want to leave the hospital Cause that's when I saw my face four months into my hospital stay. I had not seen my face yet. My doctors didn't want me to, my parents didn't want me to. They covered the only mirror in my room with, um, with uh, pictures, old pictures of me and my family and my friends. That way I couldn't see myself. So was that they, weird uh, by the way? Not like side note. Yeah. Cause like, I mean, I look in the mirror like unintentionally all the time. You guys right. out there and we get ready like how was that (laughs) even people are like oh i don't look in the mirror bull crap you do and you maybe you don't even notice that you're doing it but you're doing it um yeah i hadn't seen myself and and then i did and it was an Mm. it was an accident my mom uh, actually i asked my mom if she could bring me my laptop because i took pictures in iraq and i transferred the pictures to my laptop and then my laptop was sent to my family and uh I uh, asked her if she would bring me my laptop one day and she put my laptop on my lap and she opened up the cover for me. And uh, what do you think I saw in that screen? Uh, yeah. 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 My reflection. What there was. was. Your, what was your thought process? That's when I was like, what's the point in even getting out of the hospital? Mm. Like, what's the point in leaving here? When I saw what I looked like, there's no point in ever getting out of here. I remember a couple of weeks before that, I saw um, a Marine in the um, in the hallway. You know, I was in the, my room all the time, 24-7, and doctors wanted me to get out a little bit, so I, they would push me out into the hallway in my wheelchair, and I passed by a Marine who looked awful. I mean, he was burned extremely bad. I uh, had a lot of reconstruction stuff he needed done with his face from the IED. And when I saw him, I was thinking to myself, man, I'm lucky I don't look that bad. But I didn't know what I looked like. I hadn't seen my face, but yeah. I... I've never seen anyone that looked like him before. So how could there be two? There's no way I couldn't look like that. I've never seen anything like that. Um, so when, that's when I went back to my room. And then a week later, there's my face in that screen. And that's when I realized I looked just as bad as he did. And um, I, was, I was just like, you know what? What? Why do I even want to leave here? Mm-hmm. Like, who's If I get out of here, who's going to give me an opportunity? Who's going to give me a chance? The biggest one of them all, and this isn't always an easy one to talk about. You know, I, I, it's gotten easier for me to talk about over the time, over time. But um, as in general, it's hard for people to talk about being lonely. Mm-hmm. And uh, who the hell is going to love me? Mm. That was the big one. Like, if I get out of here, who is going to choose to love me? And that was a very difficult thing for me to handle. Um, so I did feel hopeless at that time. But again, that's why I know so much about hope is because I felt hopelessness many times in that, especially in that early on recovery. And that doesn't mean, you know, I am an extremely positive person. I love my life. I love life in general. That does not mean I won't feel hopeless again at some point. That doesn't mean I'm not going to deal with something really difficult again. I just know when I do feel that way, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to find a way to get through it. Um, but again, 
I know all about this hopelessness or I know a lot about hope because I know a lot about hopelessness. Yeah. And, and, um, that's crazy about the Marine story. And and then you saw your face and I'm sure your mom felt horrible. She said, Oh my gosh. Right. She did. And, and, and she had to, they had to bring in my psychologist, psychiatrist wow. and oh yeah, it was, you know, I had given up. I was saying, you know what, I'm, I'm hopeless and this, this sucks. And the hospital was like, Hey, we got to do something about it. And they brought in my psychologist, talked mm-hmm. to him for a while and um, nothing he was doing was helping me. And he knew that and, talked to me for an hour like a psychologist would like from the book and uh, realized it wasn't working so he decided you know basically like throw the book away and uh, just start talking to me and uh, he started talking to me about dead spiders all of a sudden and I'm like what the heck is this guy doing <laughs> like dead spiders and uh, you know like if you're like in crisis and you're uh, dealing with a lot of crap you think your friends should talk about dead spiders with you like that's not gonna help but he had what he was doing. And then uh, he, he realized that wasn't working. He left the room five minutes later. Or no, he left the room and a minute later, he comes back in and he's carrying a jar full of dead spiders. What? Yeah. I'm like, what is this guy doing? But that's when I realized, because up until that point, I, I believed I was crazy. Yeah. And uh, crazy people are, you know, when you deal with hopeless things, you do crazy things. So hopeless people, they do some crazy things. And, you know, I was hopeless at that time. And, uh, but when he came into that room, I realized I wasn't crazy. You know, it was him. He was crazy. Yeah. Like, yeah. He needed a psychologist. That psychologist needed his own psychologist. psychologist. Yeah. Yeah. That's but what he was doing really was he was pulling me away from it. Yeah. He pulled my mind out of that situation that I was in, re- distracted me. And, uh, all of a sudden I was thinking about how crazy he was because he had dead spiders in the jar in my room. And, you know, and I talk, I, I call that hope. That's it. What he was doing for me that day was he was giving me hope. And hope comes in all shapes, forms, sizes. And that day, hope came in a jar full of dead spiders because he didn't give up. He didn't. He looked outside the box and he said, you know what? This isn't working. I got to do something. And that's the thing. Sometimes hope doesn't come the first time you try to give it to somebody. It doesn't come the second time you try to give it to somebody. But you don't give up. And he didn't give up on me. And he found a way to pull me out of that hopelessness that day. Yeah, no, that's fun. I'm just imagining your reaction, looking at this guy, like, "What in the hell are you doing?" Oh yeah, <laughs> I still think about that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's funny. And so, remind me, how long were you in the hospital in San Antonio? I was in uh, the hospital for six months. So I was in uh, the ICU for three and a half months, and then I was in like the step down unit for another two and a half months. And really, I I, I should have been in longer. Uh, I had a problem with my face, so the skin on my face was not healing. It was actually mm-hmm. getting worse. And the doctors could not figure out why. Um, But they actually were like, you know what? It might be because you're in the hospital. Um, And I think you need to leave here and be away from this illness and all the sickness here. And and, uh, when I got out, I I started to heal. My face started to heal. So I was in for six months, though, total. And then what was was that first year like after you got out? Oh, man. It was a mess, especially right when I got out. When I was living in a – we were in a – you know, it's like a hotel uh, next to the hospital. It's right. It's kind of owned by the hospital. Mm. And uh, I can remember the rooms being really dark. And I was in an electric wheelchair. And the rooms really aren't, like, built super handicap accessible. And um, I can remember my parents having to be nurses and doctors. Um, you know, like, when I left the hospital, I wasn't in good shape. I was a disaster still. 
and they still had to take me into the shower and give me the showers that they were giving me in the hospital, which meant debreeding my skin. You know, when my skin would it was bad in some spot, they had to take it off. And uh, I can remember, you know, I, I just remember this stuff like, you know, and as I, t- I don't talk about this stuff that often, not because it like it's hard to talk about. I just don't even think about it that often what my parents really went through. But like uh, in the shower, they would I would bleed and they had wow. to. Yeah. And it would just like then now they got to figure out how to stop the bleeding. Like, you know what? I don't know. You know, parents are amazing. And um, no parent should have to ever go through that, uh, but they do, and they choose to. My parents made the choice to come down and freaking help me, man. And it's amazing that they did that, but it was hard. Um, and I was still a soldier. I wasn't out of the Army yet. I was still a soldier. So I had the Army checking in on me every day. I had to do PT every day, and PT was amazing and hard at the same time. Um, but I would go into that room to do my physical therapy and I was surrounded by guys who were missing their arms and missing their legs and who were uh, quadriplegics or paraplegics and they were still doing stuff. Um, and it was amazing. And I remember, I can remember a day where this guy came. I, so this, this my routine was I would roll in my wheelchair. I didn't have my prosthetic yet. I'd roll in in my wheelchair. I'd roll right up to um this uh this bike that you can grab onto the handles and then your feet go on as well and you keep you pump it back and forth Mm -hmm. back and forth and your feet do the same thing and uh, i would do that but i couldn't hold with my hands and i only had one foot so that wasn't gonna work so every day i would go over there and my my uh, physical therapist troy would come over and he would strap my hands to the machine and he would strap my foot to the machine and i would just go and I would just go and I wouldn't stop until they came over. And if they forgot I was there, then I would work out a really long time. Right. Um, but that's what I did every day. And I can remember one day I was leaving and this guy, um, this other soldier stops me. And uh, I had seen him every day in there. And he had um, no legs and one arm. So he was missing both of his legs and he was missing an arm. And he stopped me on my way out. And, you know, I'm in my wheelchair. I can't push myself with my hands. So I pull myself with my one good leg. And it looks terrible. It's really hard to move. You're not going very fast. And he stops me. And he says, I just want you to know that you are such an inspiration to me. Mm. So that's what he said to me. And I looked at him and I was like, uh, really? <laughs> like, you're an inspiration to me. Like I would go in there every single day and I'd watch him work out with one arm and kick butt every day. And I was inspired by him and not only him, but the other guys too. And I never once thought of being an inspiration to anybody else. I was just doing what I was supposed to do. I felt, I thought, but I guess the, the point of it is, is, you know, every single day when we're out doing something, people are watching us. Mm. they're watching us they're seeing what we're doing and we have a direct um we have control over the environment that we're in and if we're doing amazing things people are watching us doing amazing things and they will start to do amazing things if you're doing garbage and you're doing really negative things the people around you will do the same 
And you don't tell me people, oh, no, I don't have any influence. That is a bunch of garbage. You're just saying that because you don't want to have any influence. But you do. People are watching you every single day. So that was just part of my recovery, um, doing the um, the physical therapy every single day. And I lived down in San Antonio for another uh, for three years total, um, just getting ready, having all my surgeries finished up. I had surgeries on my hands and my eyes and um, a lot of extra stuff. So they kept me in the Army uh, for a while longer until I got most of that stuff done. And then I moved home where that was an, another a new battle. A new battle. Yeah, I love that story. I, I always say that too. It's you never really know who you're inspiring. You never really know who's watching. Um, you know, I have a, a decent social media presence, nothing insane, but you know, I was at a speaking engagement the other day and I was speaking and didn't really think anybody got impacted out of some of my content. And then someone came up to me, they're like, Hey, I've shared your stuff with so many people. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy. It. I'm like, wow, like I, I didn't really think that many people were engaging. Like, this is awesome. So I love that you mentioned that. I try to drive that home to everyone, whether you're like an 18-year-old kid or you're you're 81. Like you never know yeah. who's watching you, right? Well, and you know, like that guy, that person coming up to you and telling you that, more people need to do that. Mm-hmm. More, more people, you know, like I have so many people that have influenced me extremely positively. And I let them know what they've done for me because – you got to be rewarded when it comes to certain things. And when you do, you put your life out there and you tell people about things. And when you, when you that person came up to you, it felt really good. And it does feel really good when we're allowed to be rewarded. And sometimes we got to pat, pat ourselves on the back too. That's a part of it. If it's not coming from others and, and you know, you're doing really good stuff, you can pat your, you're allowed to pat yourself on the back once in a while too. Yeah, for sure. And, and um, I know you mentioned you got, you went home and I know you mentioned what about 10, 15 minutes ago that you were uh, nervous about finding love. But I know before we even started recording, you talked about your wife and kids. So did you know your wife prior to, to all this or what was that like? I did not actually. So, you know, I'm glad that I did not have a relationship when I got hurt. Yeah. I am extremely happy about that because, you know, in that hospital, I saw way too many relationships disintegrate. Um, you know, Hey, you get married for better, for worse. That's what, that's what you say. But when your husband loses his limbs and he's burned and you no longer recognize him for better, for worse, that doesn't sound so good anymore. Yeah. And I saw that happen too many times. So I am so glad that I was not put in that situation. Um, and I'm so glad that I didn't have children at the time to also have to go through all that stuff. Uh, my parents and my brothers and my uh, other family and friends, they did. But I'm glad I did not have a wife and kids. Now, my wife today, Amy, I know, you know, just knowing who she is, she would have stuck around. She, yeah. she, wouldn't, have, she wouldn't have gone anywhere. Um, she's just an amazing human being and I met her. Oh man, this is where I get myself in trouble when we start getting into dates. Like how <laughs> long? When? Um, uh, so we've been married five and a half years. So we met seven years ago, and uh, I met her through a mutual friend um, named Matt uh, Matt Chacom. And uh, that might sound familiar to some of the listeners right now because they're like, "Oh wow, why would he tell us?" The guy's name is Matt Chacom. And then you think about 
match.com and you know what I'm talking about. So there was no mutual friend. It was online. I met her through, uh, I met her through online dating match.com and uh, I was on match.com, but I'd never, you know, I always say I dated the same way in high school that I did on match, which means I never asked anyone out ever. I am a baby. I am a wimp. I don't do that. <laughs> I am. I don't like rejection. So I, so I had a match profile, but I didn't do anything with it. Um, and, you know, people would message me and it would usually start off like, hey, I know who you are. I know your story. You know, thank you for your service. And then, you know, maybe they would want to get to know me a little bit more. But I don't know. The way that started, that wasn't really my thing. Then Amy messaged me and made no mention of anything about my story, about me. Just we were having a conversation. Um, and I think I talked to her in the second day and I'm like, do you know anything about me? And she's like, no. And I'm like, why are you talking to me then? <laughs> like, you, you know what I look like. You saw my profile picture. Um, my wife almost never looked, I would say that she's never looked at me any different. Hmm. I, and I can't figure that out totally. Like when I first met her in person, you know, first thing I did was walk up to her and like wave my hand in front of her face. Like, can you see me? You you do see what I look like, right? But she just never saw it that way. And uh, I don't know. She's just amazing for that. And uh, That's cool. we, um, I always tell kids I met her and then I married her the next day. <laughs> and the kids are like, uh, I'm like, that's super creepy, huh? Right. <laughs> and, uh, it was a year, it was a year and a half later. We, uh, we dated for a year and a half and we got married. Yeah. Well, um, when you were getting ready for that date, were you nervous going in or what was that like? Was I nervous going in? I wasn't going at all. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, telling you, I'm a baby. <laughs> I am a baby. I had my friend who was staying with me at the time. I was like, hey, we need a code. I'm going to go over. You got to call me at some point and you got to like, if I, if you, I don't remember how it worked, but if like yeah. somebody says the word, then you get to leave or whatever. That's the pullout. And, uh, he said uh, it was like something about my dog being sick. Like he's going to call me. My dog's sick. And uh, I have a service, the old service dog. He's 12 years old. And he's like my son. And he's like, I'm going to call you and tell you Amos is sick. And uh, and that will have to be, oh, my dog is sick. I got to go. Yeah. So like, that was the plan. So he calls me um, that first date that we had, um, Amy and I, he calls me. And I'm having such a good time that he calls me. And I'm like, why is Pat calling me? And I uh, answer the phone. And he says, dude, Amos is sick. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, Amos is sick? What's wrong? He's like, no, no, no. Remember I told you I was going to call you and say that if you needed to leave? And I'm like, oh. Like, no, everything's good, man. I don't need to leave. So I had to actually tell Amy what was going on because I just, like, yeah. was basically telling her that my dog was dying. And she's like, oh, my gosh, like, go. And you're like, no, no, I don't need to go. Yeah. No, and then I told her, listen, I wasn't sure how this was going to go, so I had a way to get out of here in case it didn't go well. But it did go well. But yeah. I was nervous. Nervous isn't even the word. I wasn't going to go. And my buddy, Pat, is the one that was like, you need to go. Go now. Yeah. Like, All right, I'm going. Man, sh shout out, shout out, Pat. I mean, Match.com, but Pat, Pat had a play in there too, right? Oh, he sure, he <laughs> sure did. There's no doubt about that. 
Man, that's what you got such a cool story. And I know now you're speaking to to millions of people from all walks of life, right? Like schools, sports teams. I know you've been featured on, on Fox News and, and all different outlets as well. Um, so so what do you really have going on right now? What are you excited about? Uh man, I love talking to students. Yeah. I love talking to students. I'm telling you right now, I'm 40 years old. I'm glad I'm not a middle schooler. Oh, for you sure. know, with the world they live in is is not easy. You know, and we always say, you know, as adults or as older people, we look at kids sometimes and we don't give them enough credit for what they are dealing with. Like when I was their age, I didn't have social media. So we talk, you know, sweethearts and heroes. We talk anti-bullying. That's a part of our message. We always say we can pull the word bullying right out of it. And it's still the same message. It's just about taking care of each other and doing the right thing and giving people hope and all that good stuff. But um you know, bullying, what we know as kids is a lot different than what it is today. Yeah. Those kids, they can't escape it. You know, you get bullied online and you're bullied when you get home, when you're on the bus, because it's in your hand or it's in your backpack. So they have a tough time. And, you know, it's it's crazy for me that when I go into a school and I tell kids my story, there are kids in that school who have much worse of a story. Wow much harder of a life and i can't relate with those kids and i will never tell anybody that i can relate with them but what i can do is i can tell them that the hopelessness that they are feeling they can get through i can't tell you exactly what you're feeling but i know you can get through through it and this is how you know you have to rely on the people around you who are there to help you you can't just do this on your own. You can try. But when you get to a point when you realize, okay, I'm not doing this on my own. First of all, that's not a bad thing. It's just something new to you. How do you get through it? Other people. Um, relying on the people that are around you to help you get through it, but also holding on and you know, long enough for those people to come around. You know, too many too many people, too many kids give up. And uh, the number, if we if we use that awful, awful word, suicides, is the number is just, it's way too high. And it's ridiculous. And uh, too many kids, too many people in this world are giving up. And a lot of the times it's a moment that it happens. Like it's a buildup to that moment, but it's the moment that takes their life. Mm -hmm. um, I would say most people that do it would regret that moment if they've lived through it. I have yeah. too many friends that have lost their life. So just helping them recognize that, you know what, I know things don't seem good right now, but it is a blessing to be alive. You know, I always, I have this, been saying this for a little while now, life is good even when it's really hard. Hmm. It is. It is good because we're here and we get to make it better. And a lot of it is a choice. And it's hard to tell people that like, hey, you're dealing with those really difficult things right now because you're choosing to. Well, what happened to me? The best thing that ever happened to me. I don't have to look at it that way. I choose to because if I don't, guess what? It's awful. And that day will never be good in my life. And there's no way I'm having this conversation with you right now. There's no way I'm having this conversation with students in schools because I wouldn't have a positive attitude. What would I have to share? So I love talking to students. I love talking to anybody that wants to listen. And as you can tell, sometimes I don't know how to shut up. But I love being able to talk to people. 
Yeah, man. I no, you've done you've done a fantastic job. I think you've hit on uh, some amazing points, and I love that you're trying to give back to the youth, man. That's something that I'm really passionate about as well. And I agree. I'm glad I'm not in middle school right now um, because, I mean, just with the social media and all this crazy stuff that's been pushing the schools, it's like, man, I, I would not want to be at that age range. Um, and I like that you're just out there being a light, right, encouraging them. And I think more and more people just need to step up and do that, in my opinion. I love doing it. And I'm telling you right now, the reward every time is when those kids come up to you at the end and they tell you, you know, what you did for them. Yeah. That's, that's payment. That's reward. That's everything. It makes it so, it makes it all worth it. Dude. And I mean, you, you could have saved a life that day in your speech. Some kid could have been about to do an unfortunate thing and said, you know what? Rick really spoke to me and might not even have gone up to you after, but he could have went home and completely changed his mind. Right. I, I spoke to an inmate one time and uh, I spoke to inmates one time and um, my service dog, I got through a program called puppies behind bars. And uh, I had an inmate that I spoke to. I spoke to the, all the inmates in the, the program. And a couple of weeks later I went back and the inmate came up to me and he said, um, you know, after you spoke to us, I got uh, my, I had my parole hearing and he's like, my parole got denied. And he's like, oh, He's like, I almost killed myself. Mm. I, I would have killed myself. He's like, but then I thought about your your presentation, your speech the other day. And he's like, I'm here because, because of that speech. I mean, you know, like, uh, I don't know. It's just one of the most amazing things that I've ever had anybody ever say to me in my life. And, uh, you know, he might feel like his life is worthless where he's at in his life. But those dogs that he was raising, those dogs were changing people's lives. My service dog changed my life, made my life extremely, uh, made my life so much better. And he was doing that for people. That's what he was doing, even though he was behind bars. And even if you're in the worst situation in your life, you think that there's no, there's nothing good coming out of it. The situation that you're in, you just got to find something good that's coming out of it. Because there is. I can promise you. And if you're just not seeing it, then you got to make a little bit of a change. Uh, or someone needs to help you figure out what you're what you're doing that's really good for people. So it was just one of the times I really think about that. That's happened sure, to me. I'm sure that story drives you on those days that everyone has where you just don't feel like doing it. And then you're like, oh, man, I, I could impact another person like that today, right? Yeah. There, well, there's times I question myself, am I going to impact anyone? Mm -hmm. today and uh, there's times when i speak to a group and i'm like you know was there anybody really listening in there and i know for a fact that there was and maybe it wasn't even the majority maybe it was just a few of the people in the room that were listening but the people that are listening are the ones that need it that's why they're listening and uh, i believe that every time i do get this opportunity i am able and allowed uh, to help people yeah, man, for sure. And I appreciate you sharing that. I got I got one more for you. And then I want you to to go into how people can connect with you. Um, from your perspective of a retired United States Army sergeant, what can people do right now that aren't serving in the military to support this country, right? I'm, I'm a big patriot. Like I said, at the beginning, I love America. I feel like less and less people are loving America, unfortunately. Yeah. And I'm trying to push people to show support for the country, right? So, so what would you suggest? Oh, man, you know, I mean, this stuff's in the Bible. Yep. Taking care of your neighbor. Yep. Taking care of your neighbor, and your neighbor just happens to live in this country. Like, um, I'm, you know, you can take care of people in other countries as well. I love, you know, when I say I love humanity, I love people. I do. I love people. 
Um, but where I live right now is in America and my neighbor is right here. And sometimes we forget about the people in our community. Mm. And uh, we, you know, I live in New York. You know, should my money, should my support go to somebody in California? Maybe, but there's somebody right next door who needs that same help and I'm reaching out to California for. I just say, you know, help your neighbor out, help your community out. Your community needs it too. Um, that's just one thing that I um, think of all the time. I love this country. I absolutely do. Um, we got to help our communities more, our small. We, we look too big sometimes. Sometimes yeah. we got to look right next to us and recognize that, you know what, our neighbors probably dealing with some really difficult things in their life as well. You know, there's homeless problem everywhere. And guess what? There's probably a homeless problem where, where you live as well. Why not reach out to them? Why not not the national organization? Who, like there's a there's somebody who lives 10 minutes away from you who doesn't have a home. You know, yeah. buy them a gift card. Help them out with something. I don't know what that answer is, but do something locally. I love that. Um, I think we get need to get back more back to community and uh, the people that are the closest to us. Yeah, man, I love that. I appreciate you mentioning that perspective. And yeah, I mean, it could be next door. They they might have a house, but they could be really struggling and be on the brink of not having a house, right? That's and right. Yeah. It's all about having things. those conversations and stuff too, and and just yeah. obviously willing to have a helpful hand. So yeah. Um, but yeah, man, where, where can people connect with you? I know you got, um, sweethearts and heroes, um, that yes. you do, and then so, I know you got a lot of great content out there too. So we do. Yeah. So sweethearts and is our website. Um, our contact information is all through there. Uh, we have a contact page. Um, you can find us on any most social media. We are old men and we're still trying to figure out how to <laughs> deal with a lot of the social media. So we're on most social media platforms. Uh, if you just search uh, Sweethearts and Heroes, you can find us. And we do have a lot of content out there. We have a lot. We have a YouTube channel with a lot of great videos for parents uh, who you know, might have kids struggling. And uh, we have a hope series that we uh, are uh, looking to um, get out to a lot of schools and uh, across the country in our areas. We mostly work in the Northeast, but um, we do travel once in a while as well. So yeah, Sweethearts and Heroes, um, amazing organization who I am very, very lucky to be a part of. Cool. And do you have a website as well, or is, is that where you want everyone to go? Yeah, they should go there. I have rickyarish.net, but I'm telling you right now, I built that website, and it's awful. As you can tell, I don't even own rickyarish.com. That's when you know it's bad. I made mine too, and it's okay. My wife's in the in the marketing space, so she okay. helps me. But like yeah. my first round was it was pretty ugly. So this is my you. this is probably my third round of my website. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> still pretty you. rough, pretty rough. Cool, man. Well, hey, this was a great conversation. I personally got a lot of it. I know all the listeners got a ton out of it as well, and I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show today. Well, thank you, Chris. I really appreciate the time you spent with me. This is amazing, and I really do hope that some of the listeners got something amazing out of it. Well, that's it, everyone. Thanks again for taking the time to tune into this week's episode of Next Level Minds. Be sure to connect with Rick as well as the company that he mentioned, which is Sweethearts and Heroes. Both of those links will be below in the show notes. Other than that, I hope everyone has a fantastic week ahead.